0: It's going to be some pony rides after church, yes. and you know, it's, 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 just not, it's just not that fun to go to Disneyland and there's a sign that says you have to be this tall to ride when you're like this tall and you're ticked off because you can't ride, and today it's the exact opposite. If you're taller than this, you just, or something like, I don't get to ride the ponies, I don't understand. <laughs> today, um, today, I feel like Patton. Kinda. Um, <laughs> I'm not going to go through the speech. There are parts of it that are for like the movie theater and not for the church. <laughs> but today is a, an important day for us as uh, Americans, as uh, U.S. citizens, especially if you are one. Um, you know, if if you haven't had your television turned on, um, then I don't know where you've been. But if you have had it turned on, it's been uh, nothing but uh, remembrance videos of what happened to our nation. Ten years ago, and I don't know where you were. You probably can remember what was going on that day. I was spellbound just watching um, this issue unfold, and um, our our lives changed significantly on that day. It was coming for a while. The Lord knew it was coming. We didn't, and um, so I just want to take a couple of minutes to pray over people who are like first responders and and so forth. But by but but I want to take a minute too and just say okay. Um, here's kind of what's going on with our country and terrorism. i just take just a minute to do that, because um, this led up for a while. There were, there were terrorist attacks against America before 9-11. There was the World Trade Center in 1993. Um, somebody parked a truck bomb underneath there, and it went off, but it didn't seem to do its thing. The Oklahoma City bombing in 1995. The U.S. embassies were bombed in Kenya and Tanzania in 1998, the, the attack on the USS Cole. Um, and then, of course, 10 years ago today, the World Trade Center. And I am very, very grateful that, as an American, um, we have had peace on our soil in those 10 years. Um, Doesn't mean there haven't been attempts, but uh, somehow we've been preserved, although that's not been the case in other places around the world. Madrid has had two vicious terrorist uh, attacks and bombings in 2004 and 2006. Bali, 2002 and 2005. London in 2005. You know, the idea of perpetuating violence against... Innocent civilians, women, children, anybody is so evil. It's just so evil. And it's not military in nature. It's not even political in nature. I believe it's spiritual in nature. And um, so we're going to pray about that. Here in the United States, since 9-11, there have been about 3,000 people arrested. I don't know if you knew that or not. 3,000 or so arrests have happened for terrorism-related charges. And so far, 2,568 of them have actually been convicted. That's a particularly high conviction rate in our criminal, uh, criminal justice system. I think probably because nobody wants to be the jury or the judge that lets somebody go, and then that person does something. So there's great care taken. There have been several attempts on our soil to hurt people since then. In 2003, there was an attempt to destroy the Brooklyn Bridge. Of course, woohoo, train, train, some train whistles. Do yeah. Don't you just love the sound of a train? <laughs> it's really cool. Um, anyway, I wish I had one on my car, but, you know, it's a... <laughs> not that I honk at people or anything, but come on. You wish the same thing. Just admit it to yourself. <laughs> Makes me want to be at a Mariners game or something. Okay, 2004, two guys tried to, to, to bomb the New York subway system right preceding the Republican National Convention. That was thwarted. In 2005, a guy named Michael Curtis Reynolds was arrested, and he's convicted. He's serving 30 years right now. He tried to blow up a refinery and and a a gas line. And in 2006, there was a guy named Asen Hamoud, who his plan was to destroy the New York, the financial district, by blowing up the Holland Tunnel. He didn't succeed. Not only did he not succeed, the bomb didn't work, but his thinking, you know, the Holland Tunnel, okay, the financial district is above sea level. Holland Tunnel, it wouldn't have made a difference in the financial. Anyway, so... And then a couple of years ago, on Delta Airlines, a guy's underwear caught on fire, and it was a bomb. And uh, I make it sound... <laughs> it was a serious deal, no matter how silly I make it sound. Um, and there's always this sense, it seems like to me, there's always a sense that, hey, this could have been really bad. But there was this element of incompetence involved. And it could be... I'm just grateful that there's also been a layer of spiritual protection I think involved I want to pray over that especially over people who are first responders and um, I know we've been praying for a lot of people today it's really okay to pray for people right and so um, I wanted to just take a second to do that many, many of the people of the, of the 2,700 or so people who died um, in the World Trade Center tragedy were people that charged in there after the planes hit First responders, um, police officers, firefighters, and uh, people that have it in them, hardwired to charge into a dangerous circumstance because of their desire to help people in need, is that kind of courage is remarkable and it needs to be properly honored. So I'm not going um, to. They don't. They don't want to stand up right now because I said those things and they don't want attention. But nevertheless any first responders that are here whether you're a police officer or a firefighter or any kind of a first responder i would like for us to pray over you so would you stand to your feet first responders i know there's one back in the corner i see him back there stand up come on <laughs> anybody else first first responders okay let's pray lord first thank you for the metal the metal of these hearts the courage, the desire to just care for people in the most dangerous circumstances. We ask for protection upon these that are are representing so many others. Fill their days, Lord, with, with just your sweet words, but I also ask God for you to cover them and protect them. Lord, not just for these that are standing in this place, but all across our nation, people who choose to protect the innocent and to help the people in need. Fill their days, God, with your guidance. Order their steps. Protect them, Lord, we pray. And Lord, as we pray over this, we ask for you once again to just guide our, our president, our Congress, the, the, our military, Lord, the people who watch for our safety and make important decisions. Grant them heavenly wisdom, Lord. We pray, Lord, that it wouldn't be based upon their experience or their motives, but instead that heaven would dispense wisdom that would be used to protect the innocent. And we thank you for it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Okay, we got one thing fun to do, one cool thing. Would you come up and help me with this, honey? I bet you we got someone who's ready with a memory verse. Call one up. Victoria. Come on. (laughs) Can, Can I help you up here, honey? Okay, sure, she says. Okay, let's start by you telling everybody your name. Victoria. No, no, into the microphone. Victoria. What's your last name? McGuire. How old are you? Eight. You had to think about that? (laughs) Sure. Okay. Your hair looks perfect now. Thank you. Mm, You're welcome. Okay, so you have a memory verse for us? Yeah. Let's hear it. (laughs) Go ahead. Go ahead and look. Jesus oh. Christ. Christ is the same today, yesterday, and forever. Hebrews thirteen twelve. Way to go. Way to go, honey. Okay. Okay, thanks, honey. Let me help you down. Okay, kids, it's time to go to class. The ones that are going to class, Ignite, it's staying here today. So we love our kids. Go to class. Have fun. We'll see you after church out there on the horse rides and so forth. Bye, kids. you guys in the front row got to get a memory verse and you'll get a free ice cream cone next time <laughs> I can tell that's going nowhere <laughs> okay you know we have chairs in here for people that are sitting out there we could maybe take a minute and let them once the kids go you kids should be making more kid noises kids make noises right right Bye, guys. <laughs> okay. Well, while, while this sw- swap is going on, let's just pull out our proverb for the day. I love to uh, just always have one proverb. Today's the 11th. So <clears throat> get this proverb. that just leapt off the page and said, you got to use me on 9-11. Proverbs 11-11. Good people bless and build up their city but the wicked can destroy it with their words. Good people bless and build up their city. I think that's partly what's going on here today. We have our kids event today. It's because we believe in kids, and so this is meant to bless the kids of the neighborhood and the city, and that's partly what we're doing. We've been in a series um, <clears throat> talking about God's big idea, the church, and if you're a guest today, thanks for coming to Crossroads Church. We, we, love, we love having guests, and uh, we... Um, greet you here, and just want you to feel at home, and thanks for coming. We've been in this series, and uh, we've been in this series about God's big idea of the church and trying to figure out a whole lot of things. Why, why, is the, why is this such a big idea? How did it even survive the very first century? And um, what I mean by that is that um, in the first century, there was an effort that was made by organizers and leaders to squash the church they, t- they tried to get people to stop talking about Jesus, to stop talking about the resurrection, what was going on. And in fact, the church survived other things that were very powerful then. Rome. Rome ruled the world. Rome's gone. The city still exists. But first century Judaism is gone. In fact, in the year 70 or so, or 70 exactly, um, there was this... Uh, this moment when Judaism came to this grinding halt in the Holy Land and the Romans went in and they basically said, stop it. And they tossed all of the, the Jews out of the city. They, they conquered, the, they tore down the temple and they basically scattered it. Judaism in the first century was, was basically snuffed and squashed. And, uh, and yet there was this ridiculously small group of people who would not let go. And they kept up with this, this thing they were doing, this, this story they were telling. So now today, these non-religious scholars are trying to figure out, they, their studies out there, their books, and they try to figure out oh, why? why did Christianity survive? It shouldn't have. And so um, they, they try to figure it out and they come up with these explanations and it's these convoluted, it just doesn't make sense. You know there's got to be something more to it. Well, Christians, we have a tendency to take a look at the world and say, okay, there were people who were there that were eyewitnesses to some things and there's the answer to your question, actual eyewitnesses. So about 2,000 years ago, about two months after Jesus was crucified and he resurrected, there were thousands of people that were pouring into Jerusalem from the surrounding neighborhood. Why? Well, they were pouring in because there were people in there saying, hey, the guy that they executed publicly, he's walking around. I'm not talking about a couple of people saw him. There was at least one instance that 500 people Jesus was dialoguing with and talking with him in a group. 500s of people were seeing him. So A lot of people are moving in from the the surrounding countryside. They're hearing that things are going on. The miraculous is happening. And they want to see it and they want to be a part of it. Pretty amazing things were going on. And uh, it 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 wasn't some story about some other place. It was their neighborhood. He was crucified right down that street. He was buried right over there. And we saw him right over here. I mean, it's like really, really pretty wild stuff was going on. And these eyewitnesses kept up with their story. They said... He came, he was sent from God, he died for your sins, he was buried, he rose from the grave, and then he appeared. They kept saying that over and over again. And um, that supernatural, the power of that supernatural event is what has kept this whole thing, this whole movement going on. So what was going on there was this this very delicate balance between the Jewish leaders and the Romans. They were kind of co-governing. And um, there was all this disruption that started because of this, this movement We've talked about that. So these Jewish leaders got these ringleaders, these, these leaders of this movement called The Way, and they brought them in, and they said, you've got to stop talking about Jesus. You've got to stop saying that name, and you've got to stop using the word resurrection. You've got to stop, stop, stop. It's okay if you want to say God. It's okay if you want to say religion, but just stop saying the name. Sound familiar? Anyway, so they kept saying that, but these poor apostles, they just couldn't shut up. I don't know if can we say shut up in here? I don't know. They just couldn't they just couldn't stop it. They just kept telling people what they had seen about this Jewish carpenter who was sent by God and that he was killed by the Romans and the Jews, and he got up out of the grave. I if you saw that, you'd talk about it too, okay? You wouldn't just. Oh, that was interesting. You would be telling about these. you know. Believe me, if you drive home today and you see a nice green shady area and you pull in there and it happens to be a cemetery and you're looking over there and out in the middle of the cemetery you start seeing this thing rumble and a guy crawls out, you're not telling anybody. I'm telling you, you're going to be faxing. You're going to be texting everybody. You're going to say, hey, get over here. You're you're not going to want to know whether you want to go get closer and look or run, but you're telling people. And once you've seen it, nobody's talking you out of it. So uh, they keep telling these stories and um, obviously the power brokers of the day don't like it. And so this organized persecution starts to break out and this guy named Stephen gets called into the Sanhedrin and they say stop it. He ends up getting executed because he won't be quiet about it. And he becomes this martyr. And uh, because the Romans at that point don't say, hey, stop killing people to the Jewish leaders. They don't say that. It like empowers them. So this persecution breaks out and for years, they're, being, they're persecuting. If you are sharing about Jesus and so forth, they drag you out of your house and arrest you and put you in prison. Some people were executed. And one of the guys that was the ringleader, the guy that was the main prosecutor was a guy named Saul, who later gets renamed Paul. So I'm, this has been a re- by way of review for what we've been talking about the last few weeks. He had this incredible experience. He's on his way to Damascus. He's going to go persecute Christians there. And partway on the trip, this bright light happens... Blinds him, he falls off his donkey. Okay, and he falls off of his Harley Davidson, and and it's like, wow my bike is scratched. But oh, I can't see it, and he's blinded. He's in trouble now, and um, a voice says to him, "Why are you persecuting me?" Uh, I didn't know I was. Who are you, Lord? He says, "I'm Jesus. I'm the one you persecute." We spent some time on that last week. It was an amazing moment. Well, Paul gets so changed by that experience. That he does a 180. He stops chasing Christians to kill them and becomes one of them. Not only does he become one of them, he becomes like a primary advocate. This is a this is a great example of the scripture that God says, I'd rather that you were hot or cold. Because he can take someone who's red hot and flip them around and use them red hot for the things of the Lord. Anyway, so so that happens to him, and he, he embraces this truth that Jesus was the Son of God, that he was that salvation is only found in him. And he went around to all these cities and he kept sharing this, this message with all these people who knew nothing about God. He kept saying, hey, I know what you do about all of your broken rules. I have the answer to the question, how do you make peace with God when you know you have not met up with God's expectations? I got an answer for you for that. So the answer to those questions that circulated: in people is, what do we do to have peace with God? when we know we haven't met his expectations? I think people are still asking that question today. And he went all over the world teaching and talking about that. Meanwhile, back in Jerusalem, at, that's kind of the church's headquarters, there's this controversy that starts brewing. And that's what we're going to have some fun with on today. Because this controversy, I mean, this makes me chuckle. It was a pretty serious deal. And because you know, if you're a, if you're a student of the Word of God, if, if you, you already know how this story comes out. You can chuckle when you read it. But believe me, these guys were not laughing. So this controversy is going on. And this controversy is extremely relevant to us today because the same controversy that was driving a wedge within the church then happens today, and it's pretty, pretty common. In fact, it has to do with the very, very reasons that some of, some of you experienced when you were growing up where maybe you had something happen you said, okay, I don't want anything to do with organized religion anymore. Or maybe, maybe your parents said, okay, we're, we're, not, we're getting out of this church and we're never going back. And maybe and this, is, this, for some of you, would be the reasons that your parents said, you know, your grandparents said, you know, we're getting out of church and not going back. This controversy we're going to talk about today is why people believe in God and want to have peace about their eternity, but they just don't think they're ever going to find those things in the church. They believe in God and they want to have peace with God in eternity. They just don't think they're going to find that the answers to that here. And it's the exact same controversy that we deal with today. Okay, so the setting is this is about 20 years or so after Jesus rose from the dead. And Paul has now gone on one of his first journeys. He's traveled all over the Mediterranean. He's been sharing this news. and He's been, he's been, um, been um, <coughs> planting churches all over. And here's what the controversy is. Who should be a part of the church? Who gets in? How many rules do you have to keep? How holy do you have to be? How much of your lifestyle do you have to clean up before you can be embraced and become a part of the church? What does it actually mean to become a follower of of Jesus in, in, in terms of lifestyle? How good do you have to be? And, you know, the controversy is pretty understandable in the first century. These people, you know, these Jewish people grew up with not just Ten Commandments, but those Ten Commandments had been expanded upon by the priests and by the leaders into another 613 more laws. I mean, they're all over the gamut. Just 613 of them plus the ten. They believed that if you were going to follow Jesus, that you had to first... It was an extension of Judaism, so you had to kind of get the 10 plus the 613 figured out before you could take on the Jesus part of it. So you can see where they're going with this. They're thinking in this linear fashion. Essentially, you had to become Jewish before you could become a Christian. And Jesus, you know, some of his comments kind of fed into that a little bit. Jesus wasn't saying that. But Jesus did come and he said, you know, I, I didn't come to abolish the law. I came to complete the law. So so there were some things that they were still trying to sort out. They But, but it made perfect sense to them that In order to become a Christian, you first had to become Jewish. And then you could become a Christian. So, at that point, you have all these Gentiles who lived all around the world that Paul had gone and talked to. They're going glitch. Hold it a minute. Paul came and told us that Jesus died for our sins. Grace, forgiveness. He told us that. That part we get. And now the j- leaders in Jerusalem are sending messengers to these churches and they're saying, um, uh, hold it, whoops, 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 not that simple. First, you've got to jump through some hoops and uh, we've got some, you've got to memorize some things and you've got to dress a certain way and you've got to eat a certain way. And uh, you've got to clean up your act. And then after that, you can be allowed into the church. That's kind of what they were teaching. Is that my phone buzzing? It is. Oh. <laughs> okay, we're square. <laughs> There's a story there. Okay. <laughs> okay, this, here's the story. This relates. This is my friend, Joel. This relates back to the days when there were pagers and not cell phones, and he was in a church choir, and I had his pager number, and I knew he was singing in the middle of the song, and I started paging him in the middle of his song, just <laughs> in church, because I should have never admitted that. 10 text messages that weren't here at the beginning of the message. Okay. Okay, Joel, we're square. Okay, you taught me. (laughs) You know, I brought my phone on purpose for another reason. That shows my weakness. Okay, so... um... (laughs) So the the message that they were trying to say was, you got to first clean up your act. You got to make some change in your life. You clean up your act and then you can be embraced and become a part of the church. I know I've heard stuff like that today. And for, the, for, for many people, that's the reason we dropped out of church. That's why people that you know where you work or where you go to school whose hearts are tender before God won't go and get involved in a church because somebody somewhere has said, you got to clean up your act. You got to do this list of things before you can be embraced. And so many people just feel, I just am not a good enough person to be a church person. Now the flip side of this is, you know, if you've been in the church for 10 years or so, if you've been in the church for a while, you, you, you've got some angst over this question because after all, part of Christianity is a moral imperative. Part of it is like, you know, is is live right. Part of it is love your wife. Love your husband. Don't lie. Don't cheat. I mean, that's part of it. So there's this list of do's and don'ts, and you know I, I'm trying to figure out at the same time, there's a message of grace and a message of forgiveness. So oftentimes in the local church, the truth of the gospel, what you should do and what you shouldn't do, comes into conflict with the grace of the gospel. And here's the deal. When there's a conflict inside a church, church people get really weird. Of course, not you, of course, me, right? Church people just get really weird. And they start erecting walls and they start creating lists and they start writing rules and they start saying, you know, you can come, but you've got to do these things. And you, that's what you've got to do first. There's something amazing, though, about some of the words written by John about his time with Jesus, and uh, so let's just take a look at that real quickly. John one fourteen it says, The Word became flesh and made His dwelling among us. We have seen His glory, the glory of the one and only Son, who came from the Father, now here it is, full of grace and truth. Now I could blow, I've blown past that so many times. That word full there isn't like a cup of coffee that's up to the rim. That word full, pleres, means complete. So, Understanding, He's saying Jesus came with complete grace and complete truth. Did you notice that there's nothing mentioned here about balance? We always think we have to balance grace and truth. There's nothing mentioned here about balancing those two. Instead, he says Jesus was the embodiment of full grace and full truth at the same time. We're always trying to figure out, okay, so we have to trade off a little bit of this grace to make room for this truth. Or we've got to dumb down the truth a little bit so that we can give grace here because of our reason. That's not what Jesus did. Somehow Jesus showed up. Somehow, I haven't got this figured out yet, but somehow he shows up full grace, full truth at the same time, and there's no conflict. They're not the opposite sides of some trade-off. Wow, it's not a balancing act. It's not a clean-up-yourself act. It's not a. It's also not a. Let's throw out the standards so everybody can feel good about themselves. It's not that either. And if we name the name of Jesus, there should be an embodiment of grace and truth, in such a way that forgiveness isn't dumbed down, grace isn't dumbed down. Somehow they coexist in a powerful way. Okay. So the first century church they're struggling with this, and we're going to have some fun. I, I mean. <laughs> This is an amazing uh, dialogue that's going on. Acts 15, starting in verse 1. And if you didn't bring your Bible, that's okay. I've got some words for you to put up on the wall. It says, Now certain people came down from Judea. That was kind of like the headquarters of the Christian church to Antioch. Antioch was the very first place that the word Christians was used to describe the people that followed Jesus. And we're teaching the believers. Okay, so this is a message to brand new believers. They're saying, Unless you are circumcised, according to the custom taught by Moses, you cannot be saved. Let's stop there for a minute. Okay, they show up in the church. These are new Gentile believers from someplace outside of Jerusalem. These are not Jews. They are not circumcised. And these guys are saying, hey, unless you are circumcised, you can't be saved. Okay. The guys are going, okay, okay. what? What? What did you just say? You have to have a surgery to get saved first. You can get saved, but first you have to have a little surgery. Wait a minute. Hold it, hold it, hold it, hold it. Paul didn't say anything about that. He showed up talking about grace and forgiveness. There was no mention of any surgery. That's fine, but he didn't tell you everything. We're telling you that if you want to get saved, first you have to become Jewish. So to become Jewish, you have to have this little surgery. (laughs) And it's like, okay, here's what that meant to them. It meant the new members class was mostly women and children. Because <laughs> the guy is saying, hey, honey, I'm just going to wait out here in the car. i got to think about this some more. You, you can do what you want to do. But what's understandable is that these, this particular group of people fully embraced, they fully believed that before you could be embraced by the church, You had to become a follower of Moses before you could become a follower of Jesus. Wow. Okay, so verse 2. This brought Paul and Barnabas into sharp dispute and debate among them. Now, Paul's pretty riled up because he's been going out throughout the whole Gentile world and he's been saying, hey, it's simple, it's simple, it's simple. Forgiveness. Open your heart to Jesus. And um, so Paul and Barnabas were appointed along with some other believers to go up to Jerusalem Place where this crazy message had been coming from because, you know, they, they were sending people out saying, Paul didn't tell you everything except about this little surgery. Okay, to see the apostles and the elders about this question. The church sent them on their way, and as they traveled through Phoenicia and Samaria, they told how the Gentiles had been converted. This news made all the believers very glad. When they came to Jerusalem, they were welcomed by the church and the apostles and the elders to whom they reported everything God had done through them. So now Paul's talking to the main guys you know, Peter and Matthew and these guys who are kind of like in charge. And he says, hey, guys, we got to get this straight now. This is a really big deal. For the last two and a half years, I've been traveling all, traveling all over. I've been finding these people and saying, hey, I've got good news for you. And they're listening, and their art, hearts are open. They're saying, resurrected, I believe. And their hearts are tender. And they're saying, you know, and when they embrace the name of Jesus, God does these miraculous things in their lives. This is all going on. There's all these miracles that are going on. And, um, but I've not been telling them that you have to become Moses followers before you become Jesus followers. I haven't said anything about that. I've not been front-loading the gospel I've been sharing with this surgery deal you have recently been telling people. We've not been telling people that they've got to get these things cleaned up in their lives. And if it sticks... You know, we'll check back in six months, and if you get these things cleaned up, we'll verify in six months. Then you can be embraced in the church. I've not been front-loading the gospel and telling them that. we got to get on the same page. Paul's pretty ticked off. Verse 5, Then some of the believers who belong to the party of the Pharisees... Okay, this is always fun when the Pharisees get mentioned because they're like the perennial bad guys in the Bible. They're the Klingons of the Bible, right? <laughs> okay. Then some of the believers who belong to the party of the Klingons... <laughs> you know, there's something else too about the, I keep wanting to call them Klingons, the Pharisees. You know, they, they had their list of rules. Here's the way God works. Here's his list. This is always the way it looks. And It always will be the way it looks. And then Jesus comes along. He doesn't fit their mold, but he keeps meeting all of the requirements, the prophetic requirements of the Old Testament. Oh, and there's one other thing he got up out of the grave. So this group of Pharisees, bless their hearts, said, you know what, this guy is the Messiah. He is the anointed one. But they're still having a really tough time. You know, They're so committed to the laws of Moses that they're really struggling. And they're saying, yeah, I know that Jesus did this for everybody, but it's still pretty hard for us to imagine that they don't have to act like us to become a part of us. They're struggling with that. They don't have to act like we act for us to embrace them. They're having a tough time. Verse 5. Then some of the believers who belonged to the party of the Pharisees stood up and said, the Gentiles must be circumcised and required to keep the law of Moses. (laughs) Okay. So here's what what this means to them. These guys didn't just have 10 commandments. They got 613 commandments. Keep all that straight. Keep the 10 commandments straight. Oh, and have, by the way, this little surgery. Then you can get saved. So they're basically saying to Paul, now get back on your boat, go to all these little churches you've been, and start to train the people so that they can change their lifestyles so that they can start living with all 613 laws and plus the 10, plus they can have the surgery. Get back there and go to work, start training them, and then they can be a part of the church. Now, for those of us, we're Gentiles here. A Gentile means non-Jew. There might be some Jewish people here who have opened their hearts or, or not, but uh, for us, we look at this and we go, you know, this is pretty absurd. You're not going to build your church by saying, you know, if you're Billy Graham and you've got your 40,000 people in the stadium and you say, if you want to open your heart to Jesus, come on down front. There's guys down here with scalpels for you men and we're ready for you now. <laughs> that is not the way you build the church. And I don't bring this up from a marketing perspective. I bring it up from a truth perspective. You don't build the church by transferring your own list of expectations and superimposing them upon what Jesus taught. I'm getting a little bit ahead of myself here. Um, so I, I think before we get to, we start judging these guys, the Klingons here a little bit too harshly. Here's the deal. If you've been in the church for very long, this kind of thinking starts to creep in. It just does. It just starts to creep in. You know, your kids, here's an example. Your kids introduce you to one of their friends and they say, oh, but she's a Christian. And you look and maybe you see some hardware going through the eyebrow and you see some marks on her skin and you're thinking, you know, what is her deal? And you're starting to think, you know, I don't know, she doesn't look like a Christian to me. The thinking has crept in there. And if we're not too careful, we'll start to settle into... Our own version of Christianity, of what Christianity looks like, and I know we can get there. And then some, suddenly someone will come along that doesn't fit into our version of Christianity, and we start to become a little bit Pharisaic. We start to become Klingons. Should I stop doing that? Because I like the Klingons. I mean, the Klingons are cool, especially in the next generation. Never mind, okay, so. <laughs> but we have our own standards. And we get a little uncomfortable, but that is exactly what was happening in the first century. Now, I've, I've been thinking about this message for a long time, probably two months. And, um, you know, I'm kind of hard-headed. I, I, I was thinking this might not be so smart of me to preach this because there could be people here who just like things nice and clean. And they like their Christians around them nice and clean. And I like nice and clean too. I really do. And I don't want anybody to go, okay, Terry just flung the doors open to the church and you don't have to care about the word of God anymore. Everything is grace, grace, grace. I am not saying that. I am not saying that. um, But I'm saying something here. That I want to keep our hearts in this place fresh before the Lord. And here's the deal. God loves the lost Every bit as much as he loves the saved. He doesn't love you and me more because we go to church. Anyway, verse 6. The apostles and the elders met to consider this question. After much discussion, Peter got up and addressed them. Brothers, you know that some time ago God made a choice among you that the Gentiles might hear from my lips. This is, this is uh, Peter talking. From his lips, the message of the gospel and believe. God, who knows the heart. Okay, I got to stop right there. Do you believe that? Do you really believe that God knows your heart? Because we can't. I mean, I can't know your heart. I just know how you dress. I I can't know your heart. I just know what's marked up on your skin. I, I don't know your heart. I just don't know what kind of music you listen to. I just know you don't keep your yard straight, and you know we got rules around here. The neighborhood association wants the yard to be mowed. That's what I know. (laughs) So verse 8, God who knows the heart showed that he accepted them. These law-breaking Gentiles who don't even know the Ten Commandments, much less the 630. God Showed that he accepted them by giving the Holy Spirit to them just as he did to us. He did not discriminate between us and them, for he purified their hearts by faith. And the Pharisees are thinking, well, he might have purified their hearts, but they got some nasty Gentile habits. You know, they don't eat right, they don't dress right, they're just plain offensive. Okay, verse 10. Now then, why do you try to test God by putting on the necks of the Gentiles a yoke that neither we nor our ancestors have been able to bear? Basically, he's saying, hey, hey, Bob. If your name is Bob, I'm not talking to you here. Hey, Bob, you sin sometimes. You break the law, right? I mean, because didn't I see you last week? You were offering a sin offering at the temple. Didn't you come on. And Bob's going, yeah, okay, I did. And he says, Frank, what about you? You got everything together, Frank? You got everything dialed in? No, no. So he's basically saying, we don't even keep the, keep the law that well, do we? We make our mistakes, don't we? Why in the world would we expect these guys to do something that we haven't succeeded at ourselves? Let's not be hypocrites here, he's saying. Verse 11, no, we believe it is through the grace of our Lord Jesus that we are saved just as they are. Yeah, because God knows the heart. I, I got a little rabbit trail, I'm gonna <laughs> tell you. So um, the women's Bible study, by the way, it does great things. Um, this is a pitch for the Women's Bible Study. So I'm at home the other day. Lisa's off doing some errands. She's going to take her mother shopping and do some of these things. And <laughs> and so this has nothing to do with the message. It's just kind of fun. And uh, fun for me, not so fun for her. So um, so we, as a, as a couple, we are really together all the time. I mean, we do things together. I'm in love with this woman. We spend all of our time together. It's hard to separate us and... You know, and, and so, anyway, she's gone, and I was actually working on the message, and um, my phone buzzes, kind of that buzz I had a little while ago, and I get this text message. And um, so I will, I'm will, i going to quote this to you <laughs> after I get past these 10 that say, payback, 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 payback. <laughs> um, <laughs> okay, so I get this text. Now, do you ever have problems with spell check on your text messages? okay. So this one says, this is from Lisa out of the blue, Samuel 16, 17, good one, part of the Bible study. That's all it says. Samuel 16, 17, good one, part of the Bible study. My wife's thinking of me, she sends me this text. I'm looking, oh, cool. Samuel 16, 17, I'm going to look that up. So I'm flipping backwards through my Bible, and I hit 2 Samuel um, first, and I realize, oh, it doesn't say which Samuel. Okay, 2 Samuel so I'm going to it, and this is literally what 2 Samuel 16, 17 says. It says, why did you not go with your friend? <laughs> I thought, oh, well, that's kind of cool. But just to make sure, I really ought to check to see what 1 Samuel 16, 17 is. So I go to 1 Samuel 16, 17. And it says this, provide me now a man who can play well and bring him to me. Wow, that's the one she meant. <laughs> so I called her up and I said, Hey, honey, I'm not sure I get your message. She says, I meant to check it, counter. I'll call you right back. And in a couple of minutes, she sends me another text. And this one says, This one says, First um, Samuel 16:7, Which is, Man looks on the outside, but God knows the heart. God knows the heart. Verse 11, no, we believe it is through the grace of our Lord Jesus that we are saved just as they are. God can purify a heart before you can purify your life. God can purify a heart before you can clean up that nasty habit. God can purify a heart before you can fix your marriage. God can purify your heart before you realize your insecurities are driving you into behaviors that you're ashamed of. God can purify your heart before any of that stuff. And if he can do that for you, he can do it for the people around you. Grace and truth crash or grace and truth together. Grace and truth in the church crash or grace and truth in the church together. Verse 12. The whole assembly became silent as they listened to Barnabas and Paul telling about the signs and wonders God had done among the Gentiles through them. When they finished, James spoke up. Brothers, he said, listen to me. Now, you gotta listen to James about this. Here's why. This is a rabbit trail, a brief one. James is the brother of Jesus. What would your brother have to do to convince you he was God. Think about that for just a minute. I mean, I didn't have a brother. I only had sisters. What would one of my sisters have to do to convince me? I don't care what water she walked on. I don't care how many people she fed pizza to at the football game. I I wouldn't care. I mean, think how hard it would be to convince your brother you are God. And James is saying, he really is God. Okay, so those are great credentials. I think that's the, the best proof that Jesus was God in the Bible, that his brother believed him. Anyway, so um, he, says, he says, it is my judgment. Now, this is, this is the main text of our message today. It is my judgment, therefore, that we should not make it difficult for the Gentiles who are turning to God. He's saying this, is a stand, this needs to be a standard for us. We shouldn't make it difficult for the Gentiles who are turning to God. Anything that makes it difficult for people to turn to God has to be removed. Anything we're doing that makes it difficult for the Gentiles who are turning to God needs to be stopped because when we make it unnecessarily difficult, we are resisting the will of God. Wow. Verse 20, instead we should write to them, Now, the guys back in Antioch are waiting to hear about all this. Telling them to abstain from food polluted by idols, from sexual immorality. You want to define sexual immorality? He says, no. Not going to try and define that for you, but we're going to say this. And from meat of strangled animals and from blood. And of course, the Klingon in the corner with the notepad is going, okay, and then what? (laughs) Uh, What's the next one? That's it. He's saying, that's it. Wait a minute. There's ten plus 613, plus surgery, and you're reducing it down to this? There is an intellectual, spiritual concussion shockwave going through here. That's it? Yep. Wow. We're going to just basically tell them these two things. Try not to offend the Jews and abstain from sexual amount. What about lying? What about cheating? We're not going to worry about that for now. That... That, God will get to that we don't have to worry about that for now that meat thing is really really offensive so we'll ask them not to offend their Jewish brothers but, but we're not going to get into this list of 613 things what, what, what are you saying we're telling them come on in and join be a part of this movement be a part of the gathering you're in just like you are you're in that's what we're going to tell them Wow. Verse 21. For the law of Moses has been preached in every city from the earliest times, and it is read in the synagogues on every Sabbath. Then the apostles and the elders with the whole church decided to choose some of their own men and send them to Antioch with Paul and Barnabas. So I'm going to skip down to verse 30. So the men were sent off and went to Antioch where they, were, where they gathered the church together and delivered the letter. Okay. <laughs> Deliver the envelope, okay? The envelope, please. Nobody here watches the Oscars? Is that what it sounded like to you? I mean, okay, fine. (laughs) Stick to your day job, Terry. Okay, so um, the men are waiting. Okay, open the letter. Surgery or no surgery? Surgery or no surgery? Open the letter, come on. Tell us what it says. Verse 31, the people read it and were glad for its encouraging message. Now the church dodged a huge split. And you know what that split would have been over? this moral imperative versus grace. Keep the laws versus grace. John 1, 17, for the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. And those two should not be in conflict. They shouldn't be. Somehow the church needs to embody, not a balance of, but all of grace and all of truth. The problem is that every church, every church, Every single church, in every single denomination or independent church, every single church in every century has struggled with this topic. All of us have. We have to own that. And there are people today that you probably know who will not put their foot inside of a church because of the way this has been mishandled at some point in their life. Okay, so I'm going to bring this to a quick conclusion so we can go ride the ponies and have some kettle corn, okay? And so as a church, I want to speak to our church now, especially not so much the guests, but, but to our church. I'm going to give us three hazards that I want us to avoid as a church. One, and the reason that we're going to try to intentionally avoid this is because we have to be proactive, I think, about this, because there's this natural drift that pulls churches this way. It's just a natural thing. One, we have to avoid the drift towards insiders and away from outsiders. You know, by, here's what I mean by insiders. The people who know where to park... They know they know where to sit, they know the words to the songs, they know how to get through a Sunday without feeling awkward, the insiders. And you know, there's 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 good reasons why churches drift that way, it's because of that squeaky wheel. You know, people that don't come to church here, they don't send me emails and say what they want changed. They don't call me up and tell me what's wrong with my sermons. They don't give a rip about what goes on here. They're indifferent. Not that I'm getting a lot of complaints, but I mean, do you, you get my point? The people that express how things ought to be are the ones that are the insiders. They have opinions. There's a natural tendency to want to go with what people are feeling. It's just a natural thing. And it's the, the insiders have all of the sway. The outsiders don't. It's a natural thing. So we have to avoid the drift towards the, uh, toward insiders and away from outsiders. Two, we have to avoid the drift towards the law and away from grace. Wow, you know, as a church grows... There's this this thing that makes administrative sense that you start building policies about how things will work. Here's what we'll do in this circumstance. Here's what we'll do in that circumstance. And the problem is that policies, although they're wise, they can be really helpful, they can also become real seed beds for legalism. I'm going to give you an extreme example, a couple of extreme examples. And I'm picking these because they might jolt a little bit of emotion, okay? So forgive me if this jolts too much emotion. But there could be people at some point who visit our church um, and they're seeking after some answers from God and maybe they're a registered sex offender. What do we do? We should have a policy. We should have a plan to protect our innocent little people and our innocent big people from this risk. Okay? So a policy makes sense. But what do you do? Well, listen, I've been there before. I've been at a place where a church has to deal with those questions. And I can tell you this, policies are great, great places to start. But when it comes down to it, you're dealing with a person. I'm not going to discount the need to protect. We will never let that issue slip here. I promise you this. I tell you, we watch over our people. Okay. But, and I'm not saying there's no policies. But this is a visceral topic. So what do we do? Do we come up with a policy and we say, here are the 15 hoops? Or do we approach it on an individual basis and we sort through and what do we do? Um, you know, there was another, you know, most of you know that I came from a larger church and um, it was a big enough church that we ended up having a, a, a person attend for a while and it was a man but he always dressed in women's clothing. And as long as he came in and he sat in church and attended church and then he got in his car and drove away, nobody really was too ruffled by it. There were some Klingons present that were ruffled, okay? But, 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 but nobody was really upset. But then one day, this guy needed to use the restroom. And he felt he should go in the one with the skirt and not the pants. <laughs> this room really got silent. <laughs> Policies, the letter of the law there, would kill. It's the spirit that gives life. I'll just tell you, we handled it carefully and appropriately, and we will do that here someday. I hope we have challenges like that. They're good for us. They stretch us. But it's the Spirit that gives life, not the letter of the law. Somehow, you have to have truth and grace fully. (laughs) And that's what I want us to do here. That's really what I want us to do here. Okay, so too much time on that one. Um, Here's the thing about that, though. Churches that are okay with the messiness of grace are far more likely to experience a supernatural power that comes with uncompromised truth and full-blown absolute grace. In other words, here's the quick and dirty on that. If you can't stand the mess, you're not going to experience the power. All you got to do is read the New Testament and find out what Jesus did. He encounters a woman at the well... She was an adulteress. There was all kinds of problems. And she, what does he do? He didn't say, go clean up these things. He forgave her. Oh, and he tells the other guys that we're going to fix her by stoning her. He says, go stone yourselves, guys, you know, you hypocrites. And they all backed off. I mean, I've way paraphrased there, okay? Is that all right? <laughs> it's what Jesus did, and it's what the local church is supposed to do. Okay. Um, Item number three, avoid the drift towards preserving rather than advancing. And uh, I'm just i not going to spend a lot of time on that because we need to end here, but I'll just say that that, uh, we need to keep our eyes on our mission here, and that's advancing the kingdom, not so much protecting what we have. As a church, we're going to accept things and love people even though they're hard to accept because we will not allow preserving to override our mission of advancing the cause of Christ. So... Here's three quick things I'd like you to consider committing yourself to doing. Be bold. That means expressing your faith to people around you, sharing your faith with people, inviting people here, helping us to keep this church, the atmosphere here, open and not closed. Be bold. Err on the side of grace. It's, it, it would be impossible for me to tell you I don't try to balance them. I do. I try to balance them as best I can. I, if I'm going to make a mistake, I want to go down on the, on the grace side. I want you to do that too. Okay? Err on the side of grace. And three, remain open-handed as opposed to protective and smothering of what we have. Okay, open-handed. I think James was right. I hope that you and I choose to take more risks, especially in one area, our pursuit of future generations. We have to take more risks here. We have to be willing to let Grace lead us to places that just maybe scare us sometimes, okay? I'm not saying crazy risks. I just want us to take some risks as we pursue the generations that aren't like us. Um, James was right. We should not make it difficult for those who are turning to God. One more thing and then I want to pray. If you've been hurt by us, if you've been hurt by me personally or somebody in the room or if you've been hurt because of the closeness of what has happened to you in the past, or maybe you've been hurt by this church or maybe you've been hurt by the church I'm going to ask you to consider forgiving us just want to ask you to consider forgiving us I don't mean that as some sort of sloppy oh I can patch it up by saying I'm sorry I'm asking you to consider forgiving the church for having hurt you it's not Jesus it's not Jesus' heart and we're trying to keep this together right. That's a genuine apology. So I, I let that out to you. And I am—I just am grateful. I'm grateful to be among this group of the friendliest people in the world. I'm convinced this church is the highest concentration of friendly people that exists on the planet. And um, I love you all. So let's pray. Lord... Um, It's easy to see and look back and even to make a little bit of fun of the crazy thinking that almost split the church back then, yet it's present today. It still rears its ugly head. Help us, God, to be so full of grace. Help us to see things through your eyes instead of through our lists. Help us, God, to know that you will cover us and protect us, that, God, you want us to be forgivers of people, releasers of life, So Lord, I pray that that for us as individuals and especially for us as a group, for this church family, that we would be known, that we would be known, God, to want to make it easy for people to open their hearts to you. Lord, I pray too, if there are any wounded people here today, that I've stirred something by my insensitivities. Lord, forgive me for that, but I ask for healing now in this place. I ask God for there to be something of restoration what hell wants to tear apart that heaven would mend and bind together stronger than it was before. Lord, I also want to just thank you for this day um, the stuff that's going on outside, pony rides and popcorn and face painting and games and music concerts in here. Lord, bless our time together as a church as we play and as we love on our children. Let them know in their souls how much that we love them and that you love them just by this play day. And thank you for all of that in Jesus' name. Amen.